Good evening. The search narrows for two indigenous activists who disappeared in the Amazon rainforest. The president is going to Saudi Arabia. Is his plan to visit a betrayal of human rights? And the governor, the mayor, and crypto mining in New York. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, June 14th, 2022. A spokesperson for the indigenous group Univaha said... The search for missing British journalist Dom Phillips and indigenous expert Bruno Pereira in Brazil's Amazon rainforest was nearing the end today as the area left to search kept shrinking. Phillips and Pereira went missing more than a week ago on a remote stretch of the Itacoai River in far western Brazil near the border with Colombia and Peru. An indigenous leader spoke at a news conference in Brazil. He blasted the government's president, Bolsonaro. Partial translation, Bolsonaro is spreading hatred and anger. He brought bad people and the coronavirus. The spokesperson vowed indigenous people would protect their reserve themselves. Pereira, a former head of isolated and recently contacted tribes at the government's indigenous affairs agency, was traveling on a research trip with Phillips, a freelance reporter who has written for The Guardian and The Washington Post and was working on a book on the Amazon. And Brendan McPhillips, the Pennsylvania state director for then-candidate Joe Biden's 2020 presidential campaign, is joining Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman's team as campaign manager. Fetterman has been recovering from a stroke and has had a pacemaker with a defibrillator implanted. Biden told an audience at an AFL-CIO labor union convention in Philadelphia today he spoke with Fetterman and repeated his support for the Democratic candidate. Just yesterday I had a conversation, uh, a Zoom conversation, with uh, our next senator from the state, John Fetterman. You know, if you're in a foxhole, you want John with you, man. I know he can't wait to get back on the trail. He's looking good. There's no bigger, stronger voice for working people in this state than John. Certainly no bigger one for that matter. President Biden, the development comes roughly five months ahead of the November midterms. Fetterman will be taking on Senate candidate Mehmet Oz after rival David McCormick conceded to the celebrity doctor in the GOP primary race. And the White House announced today that President Biden will visit Israel, the occupied West Bank and Saudi Arabia next month. The decision has generated strong headwinds given the president's previous stance that the Saudi regime was a pariah because of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. U.S. intelligence believes Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, ordered the killing, dismemberment and disposal of Khashoggi, a U.S.-based columnist for The Washington Post in Turkey in 2018. A Saudi human rights campaigner called Biden's decision to meet the Crown Prince a betrayal. Saudi Arabia has also been bombing and blockading its smaller and poorer neighbor, Yemen, a war that's been called among the world's worst humanitarian disasters. State Department spokesperson Ned Price. Hundreds of cross-border attacks have emanated from Yemen 
in recent years. Of course, that is of concern to us for the threat that it poses to Saudi Arabia, but it's also of concern to us because there are 70,000 Americans in the kingdom. Beyond Yemen, there's the question of regional stability. There is the question of healing regional rifts, regional divides within the Gulf, within Lebanon. Saudi Arabia has been a partner on that as well. We've talked about the challenge that Iran poses. Not only are we working with Israel, we are working closely with our Gulf partners, including the Saudis and the broader GCC, by the way, uh, the GCC plus three, which will be in Saudi Arabia when President Biden visits there. Uh, there are also other interests, including energy. And we've spoken of our desire to see a steady global supply of energy. This has been a topic of discussion on a bilateral basis with members of OPEC. It will be on the agenda when President Biden meets with the GCC and meets with Saudi counterparts in Saudi Arabia next month as well. The line through all of this is doing whatever we can to pursue America's interests while not leaving by the wayside our values. Ned Price, the spokesperson for the State Department, human rights advocates and Democrats warned Biden that a Saudi visit would send a message to leaders in Riyadh that there are no consequences for rights violations. Questions were also raised about visiting Israel in the aftermath of the fatal shooting, likely by Israeli troops of Shireen Abu Akhla, a prominent Palestinian American journalist in the West Bank last month. We want to see an investigation that is thorough, credible, that culminates in accountability and that does so on a swift basis. We've been in close contact with our Israeli, with our Palestinian counterparts as well, to urge authorities to fully cooperate in investigating the circumstances of Shreen Abu Akhla's killing. And that includes to share forensic evidence. We've made clear our view to Israel and the Palestinian Authority that we expect, as I said before, this thorough, transparent and impartial investigation into the circumstances of her killing in a manner that culminates in accountability. The Washington Post reported that Abu Akhla, known as the voice of Palestine in a 20 year career as a reporter for Al Jazeera, was shot in the head by an Israeli soldier on May 11th while covering protests in the West Bank city of Jenin. The post revealed, after examining more than five dozen videos, social media posts and photos of the event and conducting two physical inspections of the area, including an independent acoustic analysis of gunshots, that an Israeli soldier in the convoy likely shot and killed Abu Akhla. The Post disputed Israeli claims there was an exchange of gunfire between Israeli forces and Palestinian gunmen at the time Abu Akhla was killed, or that a gunman was among the journalists when a soldier opened fire in her direction. And the tottering JCPOA, better known as the Iran nuclear deal, worked out by former President Barack Obama and then killed by former President Donald Trump, was subject of the State Department press briefing today as well. Ned Price again. Iran has advanced its nuclear programs in ways that are profoundly dangerous and that are profoundly corrosive to the global nonproliferation regime. We went from a breakout time that upon implementation of the JCPOA that was out at about 12 months, it is a breakout time that is now measured in weeks or less. To us, that is unacceptable. That is why we continue to pursue a mutual return to compliance with the JCPOA. We will do that for as long as the deal that's on the table conveys benefits that the present moment in terms of Iran's nuclear program does not. Tehran still hopes to revive the 2015 nuclear deal despite stalled talks with the United States and other world powers that have led many to conclude the accord is dead. 
The Iranian foreign minister acknowledged that his country had recently revived more nuclear activities forbidden under the agreement after the United States and its European allies backed a resolution condemning Iran before the United Nations Nuclear Watchdog Agency last week. He told reporters in Tehran, according to the state-controlled Tasman News Agency, we have not abandoned the negotiating table as the negotiations and messages are being exchanged between Iran and the West. In more national news, gentrification, the spiraling of residential rents and disappearance of affordable or low-income housing, it's a well-known phenomenon in urban centers. But there's also a sharp spike we've been seeing in the last couple of years of what's being called rural gentrification. Valuable rural property, usually near resorts and in beautiful areas, has seen its value rise spectacularly in recent years. The fallout has been hitting trailer parks, often the most affordable place to live in rural areas. But there's good news. Residents of one trailer park in Colorado banded together and bought the land underneath their homes. Joseph Burlington is rural news editor for In These Times. He's author of an article in that magazine called Trailer Park Residents Take on Venture Capitalists and Win. In this story, which out of Durango, Colorado, this trailer park, Westside Mobile Home Park, it's a really diverse group of people. The main sources for the story, Alejandra Chavez, she lives there with her family, her parents. They're from Mexico. They immigrated to Durango about 18 years ago. A really diverse park. There's white families, there's a lot of Latino families, and there's a lot of Native families in that park. The landowner approached them and said there's going to be some changes, right? In December, they found out that the park was up for sale. When Chavez and the other residents received this news, they received it as an existential threat. And the reason for that is because their park offers some of the last affordable housing in the Durango, Colorado area. The gentrification that's sweeping the rural west right now, it has been for the last couple of years. So a lot of these towns, especially these ones that have some kind of what are called outdoor amenities these days, something like a ski resort or something wealthy people want to visit or own homes near or own vacation homes near. These towns are getting basically unaffordable for anybody to live and work in them. In the case of Durango, already a lot of people have been pushed out of there. When the residents of this park heard that it was for sale, they were afraid the park would be torn down and replaced by something like a gas station or a hotel or something to kind of serve people on their way up to the ski resort. Or if it remained a trailer park, they were afraid it would just become unaffordable because trailer parks have not been spared from this gentrification that's sweeping the West. A lot of like investment companies will get into owning trailer parks because it's a good way to make a bunch of money. The poor are the target for making money of the rich investors. Absolutely, yeah. It's yeah, it's a very a very predatory model. The company that was going to buy their trailer park, Harmony Communities, they bought a trailer park outside Golden, Colorado last year in twenty twenty one and they promptly raised lot rents by fifty percent there. I mean that's a huge increase. Right. How much is the sort of the salaries, the average sort of salaries of people who live there? I mean I know it's hard to what that would mean to them if it went up 50%. Well, a lot of them are working in the service industry. They're working at the, the restaurants and coffee shops and resort stuff that's going on at hotels, that kind of thing in Durango. So they're not making a whole lot of money. If they were to be pushed out of this park, there's just basically nowhere else for them to go. Chavez was telling me that when she looked into trying to find a spot that was not in the trailer park for her family to live, she was looking at paying like something like $2,000 a month. You're not gonna afford it on service industry wages in rural Colorado. What did this community actually do to counter this threat? 
there are things that people can do. And really, this is an option that's open to any mobile home community is that they can buy the park themselves, which is what they did here in this case. So they formed a cooperative and they started looking to put together funding so that they could own the park themselves and manage it themselves. And nobody can come along in the future and raise their rents or kick them out for no reason. And so they were able to successfully buy this park they kind of had to go through a little bit of a convoluted route because the old owner still owned a couple of the trailers in the park. What's a common model is something called ROC USA. It's R-O-C USA. And that's a program that connects trailer park residents to financing so they can buy and run their parks cooperatively. That's where people should go if they're interested in learning more about how this financing can work. Did the folks in Durango succeed? They bought the park in March. Are they happy? I believe they're very happy. Yep. They're very excited to move forward with owning this park cooperatively. Another park in Durango called the Animus View Mobile Home Park had also successfully bought that park for themselves last year. So they were kind of following this model. On their website, they list some of the benefits of self-ownership. The benefits are there's no profit margin in your rent and no commercial owner who can decide to close the community. Joseph Burlington, the rural news editor for In These Times, he's the author of an article in that newspaper today, Trailer Park Residents Take on Venture Capitalists and Win. He writes, the land rush has not spared mobile home parks, which speculators buy up as investment properties. Two such investors even started Mobile Home University to sell online courses in how to do it. In a blog post titled How to Make Huge Returns on Mobile Home Parks, MHAU co-founder Frank Rolf sums up the strategy. It costs $3,000 to move a mobile home. As a result, tenants cannot leave when you raise their rents. And Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell said today he was comfortable with the framework of a bipartisan gun violence bill unveiled earlier this week and would vote for it if it's not changed substantially, adding momentum to a compromise that could pass the Senate as early as next week. The framework was announced over the weekend when Texas Senator John Cornyn announced he was open to a deal. We are making good progress. Over the weekend, there was an agreement reached between 20 senators, 10 Republicans, and 10 Democrats on a framework or principles for bipartisan legislation to keep our kids and our community safe. From the beginning, I promised my constituents that when I took an oath to uphold the Constitution and laws of the United States, I did not take that oath with the intention of violating him. John Cornyn, Senator Mitch McConnell, Senate Minority Leader, followed up with a statement today. Senator Cornyn, who, as you know, I asked to be the point person on our side to see if we could come to a, an outcome uh, after these horrible school shootings. And his uh, teammates indicated, as you have reported, a coming together behind a, behind a framework which hopefully can be turned into legislative language and passed. Um, for myself, I'm comfortable with the framework, and if the legislation ends up <coughs> reflecting what the framework uh, indicates, I'll be supportive. Uh, Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he's ready for a vote before the July 4th recess. The Senate is working on something not seen since the time we passed the Brady Bill, which I authored 28 years ago. What we're seeing again, finally, 
is a bipartisan effort to draft meaningful gun legislation. Just remember, this agreement would enhance background checks for those under 21, help states with their red flag laws, preventing shootings before they happen, would make it harder for domestic abusers to acquire a weapon by closing the boyfriend loophole. It provides much needed funding for mental health services and creates stiffer penalties on gun trafficking. The agreement was something many believed was not possible just a few weeks ago. But Democrats and a good number of Republicans said we'd have to try, and so did all the gun groups. Senator Murphy and I, before we started, called up the gun safety groups, and they said, if you can get something, get it done. That would be a lot better than a vote of everything we wanted that would fail once again. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, he says that he's, as I said, ready for a vote before the July 4th recess. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Yesterday, as Bitcoin crashed for the second time in a month, hitting an 18-month low, and crypto companies laid off employees, Cranes reported that Mayor Eric Adams will ask Governor Kathy Hochul to veto the crypto mining moratorium bill, going back on a February 2022 statement where Adams said he opposed crypto mining. Adams raised at least $200,000 from crypto interest between 2018 and 2021. He also converted his first three paychecks as mayor to Bitcoin and Ethereum, two of the few cryptocurrencies still mined with climate-killing proof-of-work method. Eric Weltman is a senior organizer for Food and Water Watch, one of a group of organizations that have been fighting the expansion of crypto mining and underutilized power stations throughout upstate New York. He spoke with WBAI about the mayor and the governor turning on their erstwhile supporters in the environmental community. This victory was passing this moratorium legislation on cryptocurrency mining powered by burning fossil fuels And unfortunately, Hochul has fumbled when questioned whether or not she would sign this common sense legislation into law. Governor Hochul has a climate problem. She also has a money and politics problem. Governor Hochul is facing a crucial test of her willingness to stand up to dirty money for dirty energy. Her campaign is being backed by wealthy crypto interests who are fighting constraints on their ability to pollute. These crypto interests are teamed up with the extreme right-wing Club for Growth in opposing this legislation. What we're saying to Governor Hochul is she's got to choose whether to side with the New Yorkers or with the extreme right-wing Club for Growth and her wealthy crypto interests backing her campaign. This is really an issue both about dirty energy, but also about dirty money. When is the deadline for her to make her decision? Well, that's a good question. The Democratic primary is on June 28th, so it's coming up very soon. Her administration has a deadline on this air quality permit up in the Finger Lakes, June 30th. So they've been punting on that decision repeatedly, and conveniently, it's now two days after the primary. However, in terms of the legislation, she has until the end of the year to either sign it or not to sign it. Food and Water Watch and our allies are calling on Governor Hochul to sign the legislation before the primary on June 28th, as well as to deny the air quality permit to 
for this existing plant, the Greenwich plant in the Finger Lakes, which I mentioned is already 24-7 burning frack gas for Bitcoin mining. Mayor Adams promised at one point to pose this, and now he's changed his mind. He's become quite an ardent supporter of crypto, isn't he? Mayor Adams needs to stick with trying to run the city and keeping his nose out of legislation that he clearly does not understand and to stop doing the bidding of his crypto buddies. What is crypto mining? The kind of cryptocurrency mining used to make Bitcoin is known as proof of work. There's no physical mining involved. There's no shovels. There's no jackhammers. Really involves proof of work in particular using thousands of computers that are kind of competing against each other to do complex calculations that are required to produce the currency. It uses massive amounts of energy. Bitcoin mining worldwide uses more energy than some countries, including all of Argentina. So it's extremely energy intensive. The bottom line, Paul, is that this is not a campaign that's explicitly against all cryptocurrency. Our concern specifically at this point is cryptocurrency mining that relies on burning frack gas and fossil fuels in general. That is our bottom line concern. That's really what we're calling on the governor to do. We're saying this is her fracking moment. This is Governor Hochul's fracking moment when she can and must and should strike a blow against fossil fuels, strike a blow against fracking, and help move New York off fossil fuels and show that she's willing to stand up to the crypto bros that are financing her campaign as well as the right-wing club of growth that has been opposing this bill. This is really a test for Governor Hochul whether or not she can stand up to dirty money for dirty energy. Eric Weltman is senior organizer of Food and Water Watch. And finally, in 1828, years before she took the name Sojourner Truth, a black woman who had escaped slavery with her infant daughter won a court fight in New York's Hudson Valley to bring her son Peter home from Alabama. It was a historic case of a black woman seeking the release of her son from slavery prevailing in a court against a white man. Isabella Van Wagenen, as she was known then, would gain enduring fame as an outspoken abolitionist, a woman's rights activist. As for her deposition and the rest of the court documents, they were boxed up and eventually stored among a million other records unseen and unrecognized for their significance. Until 194 years later, when an eagle-eyed state archivist searching for something else spotted the court records in January. Now, they'll briefly be on public display Wednesday at the Ulster County Courthouse in Kingston, New York. The archivists and others had these words earlier today. The state Supreme Court filed in Albany. And so I just went fishing in a barrel. It happened to be the year 1828. And I found a writ of habeas corpus and the associated documents with a woman's name on it. And women were rarely parties to actions in the courts. And so it piqued my interest. So I looked at the document, started reading it, noted the name Isabella Van Wagenen, read a little farther recovering her son from slavery that rang the bell so she was trying to get her son back 
under the threat of never seeing him again and having him enslaved forever. So just the fact that she was a woman going up against uh, powerful men, that's extraordinary right there. And then you add in race, and then you add in class. So it's, it's an amazing story. One of the things that's most uh, striking to me is this small little mark, this little X. This is Sojourner Truth's handling. This is her DNA left behind on this document. And the rest is legalese and all of that. This is Sojourner Truth. This is where she shows up in this story. And that was Jim Fultz, an archivist in Albany. And before that, Nell Irvin Painter. She's the author of Sojourner Truth, A Life, A Symbol. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, June 14th, 2022. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.